Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman, and this is The Fran Spielman Show, sponsored by AARP. Our guest today is Lori Lightfoot, the mayoral candidate, the former federal prosecutor, police board president, and so many other things <laughs> in government. Welcome. Yes. It's my pleasure to be here. So, you've had quite the week. Um, it's been a great week. Um, really good week. I think that uh, we are surging and peaking at the right time, and people, um, the undecideds are still out there, but I think they're paying attention, and I think they're undecided because, frankly, after millions of dollars in TV ads by the Burke Four, um, they recognize that they're, they need an alternative and they need a choice that's different from the past. And we are doing everything we can to reach out to voters all over the city and the undecideds to say, hey, look us over. We offer a very different uh, perspective, an independent reform candidate who's not part of the past. And I think we need to turn the page from that and move forward in a different direction. And, and from what we are seeing and what we're hearing, um, that message is definitely running, resonating and starting to catch fire. Now you have the added gift, I would say, <laughs> by Tony Preckwinkle firing, the midnight firing of our campaign manager. Let's explain to the, uh, to the viewers out there, this was about a Facebook post, mm -hmm. so many social media things right. that are spur of the moment and in bad taste. In this case, Scott Sizek. Uh, made fun of some of, of something you said about your role as a former young federal prosecutor who had been reprimanded by a judge and you had said I was following orders and he used a picture of the Nuremberg trials yeah. to say just following orders that doesn't wash or that that excuse didn't work. Right. Let's talk about this. Sure. What does it say about Tony Preckwinkle or does it just say something about him? No, I think it's a big. I think it's a bigger issue than this, right? It's first of all to trivialize what is arguably one of the worst genocides in human history, and use it as a, a political jab or stunt. Um, really, I think is unbelievably offensive. It's it's actually hard for me to find the appropriate word to characterize it. I don't know anybody who saw that um, or even heard about it that wasn't deeply offended by it, and frankly, rightfully so. But it, it, it's, and the fact that this happened mid-afternoon and it took hours before there was any action, I think also says something. This is, Tony Preckwinkle has been a person over the arc of this campaign that only seems to find her way to do the right thing when she's caught 
and cornered. And I think that's a problem. But, you know, look, we're going to move on. I think where we need to be in these waning days and hours of the campaign is to continue to articulate a positive vision forward for the city. People want change. They want a leader who they can believe in, who they can trust, to take on the tough challenges that we're going to face. Rahm Emanuel is going to be leaving office with a very large stack of unfinished business that is going to be front and center for the next mayor. And I think what people want to know is, can the next leader of the third largest city in the country be a person who can bring folks together, who can offer a positive vision, particularly in contrast to what we see on a daily basis from the Trump administration. We have to be different in the city, and we can be different with the right kind of leader, and I believe that I'm that leader. She has now fired her <clears throat> chief of staff, her security chief, and now her campaign manager, who also had a top job at the county. Why should we care <clears throat> about this? What does it say about her, if anything? Well, I, like I said, I, I, sadly, what we've seen over the arc of this campaign and what we've learned through, frankly, I think very good reporting is that she makes very um, bad decisions about the people that she aligns herself with, whether it's Tony Resco, whether it's Scott Sizek, Scott Keller, her um, security chief, um, and of course, Ed Burke, Ed Burke, Ed Burke. This is a person who a lot of people have nostalgia for when she was a fourth word alderman, but that's not who she is now. She just aspired to climb the ladder of being a party boss and as a consequence, I think made a lot of compromises along the way that I think have played out and show that she's a very different person. We need somebody who is going to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because they're forced to do it because there's no other political way out. We need a leader who's going to speak the truth to people in the city and a leader that people can be proud of. Somebody who um, I think like myself, who has a track record of independence, even in hard, difficult circumstances. And there have been a, a lot of hard issues that I've faced, particularly around police reform and accountability, really walking into a lot of skepticism and headwind, headwinds and finding the right thing to do through listening and conversations with people and reflecting the lived experience of people in the city. That is the way that we get things done. That's the way that we unite people. And that is the vision of leadership that I have lived and that is what I will bring to the mayor's office. I remember covering Jane Vernon. That there was constant talk about the revolving door spinning again. Yeah. Does she? Does Tony Preckwinkle have a revolving door? Look, I think the bigger issue is about her leadership, about her failure to do the right thing unless she's cornered or caught. Um, and yeah, I think there's valid questions about the people that she surrounds herself, and there's a litany of them. You know, again, not just. Keller and Sizik, but Berrios and Tony Resco and Ed Burke, why does she align herself with people like that, of that ilk? Why do you think? It's hard for me to understand, it's, but it has, probably has something to do with, you know, maintaining political power. But what we need... Are you saying she's a sellout? I, I would, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it's hard for me to understand. For example, in the case of Ed Burke, Ed Burke is one of the most racist, awful people in public life. And it doesn't bring me any pleasure to say that. But I came to the city at a time when he was full-throated, doing everything he could to oppose the first black mayor 
a true progressive, a true beacon of light, and how you would align yourself with somebody like that who didn't have some epiphany later on in life and decided, no, I'm this good person. Ed Burke is exactly the same person today as he was in 1983, 1986. And yet she aspired. Well, he adopted and raised a black child. I mean, what was that about? Has he not changed at all? Over I the think years? in his public life and the way that he views power and the accumulation of power, there's not one little bit of difference. All you have to do is read that criminal complaint. Now, I hasten to add, he's, of course, uh, entitled to a presumption of innocence. But man, oh man, what's revealed in those tapes and the way that he operates now, that's not a person I would ever ever align myself with. You're a former federal prosecutor. You put a corrupt alderman, Virgil Jones, in prison. Yes. Where is this investigation going? To me, it seems like it could topple the entire power structure of Illinois and Chicago. Well, what I can glean is that there's a lot of different tentacles to this, and a lot that hasn't, frankly, been disclosed in a public view. I would expect that after the election, um, late spring, early summer, and probably throughout the balance of the year, some of these cases are going to get to start to get rolled out. And, you know, I was a prosecutor at the time of Silver Shovel, which was the last big political corruption scandal that shook the city. I think this promises to be at least as big, if not bigger, than that. When you have Danny Solis wearing a wire for two years, the, the chairman of the zoning board who so many people clearly had to come and kiss the ring um, because of the position of power that he held, the doors that he could walk into. I think we have, you know, your imagination is not going to be able to conjure up what I think is going to ultimately be rolled out in a series of criminal complaints and indictments. Is it going to be the business community too? Is it going to be Mike Madigan and people at the state level? I, I think it's anyone that he con conceivably had access to who frankly wasn't um, working on the square. I think it's, it's going to be, um, it's going to rock the city. But frankly, all the more reason why we need a mayor who isn't part of that culture. We're going to have to have a steady hand at the till when these federal cases start rolling out. And we're going to have to have somebody that people can believe in and trust to get business done and not be caught up in any of it. I don't think any of the Burke Four, frankly, can say that. And look, whether it's Tony Preckwinkle, who frankly made herself a fact witness in the Ed Burke case because of the fundraiser and frankly her many different equivocations about her relationship, where the money came from, who initiated the fundraiser, she's going to get questioned by the FBI to be sure. There's no question about that. Do you think she already has? I don't know if she already has, but there's no question in my mind that she will. That's a certainty. It's because just a question of, because of her connection to Ed Burke, because of, frankly, the, the um, charges against Ed Burke featured the fact that he extorted a campaign contribution for her. And I don't think she's told the public the truth yet. What do you think? I mean, do you think she knew about it? I don't think she knew about that, but it, your common sense tells you a, a decent prosecutor and the prosecutors who handle these, these cases are more than decent. They're excellent. And the FBI, they're going to want to know what was said. How did this fundraiser come to be? Um, and they're going to look, of course, at every dollar that was raised during that, that fundraiser to make a determination if Ed Burke put the arm improperly on anybody else. He raised over $100,000 for her. 
they've got to analyze every single one of those contributions to make sure that they were legitimate and not part of some kind of extortion conspiracy. So, Well, wait, when you say that she hasn't told the public the truth, what hasn't she told the public the truth about? I don't think about? she's told the public the truth about the true nature of her relationship with Ed Burke. How it was, for example, he came to her to, to ask her to give her his kid a job. There's been halting... To give him a promotion. Yeah. He was already at the sheriff's office and under investigation. Well, but, but move him from the sheriff's office, which is yeah. an independent agency, to the county. She said he came to, the to her. So you're saying that that's a relationship that's closer than... I think we don't know the full contours of that relationship. She's been extremely reluctant to talk about it. And I think she's got to come clean. The voters have to be able to go into the voting booth on Tuesday knowing that. And if without answers of the full contours of her relationship with Ed Burke, I do not believe that, that people, frankly, can trust what she's said so far. What I think do it's you want issue. her to come clean on? I want, her to, I want her to explain to the voters the full contours of her relationship with Ed Burke. She's blamed it on Ann Burke. She said it's nothing. I don't think we have all the answers, and I know the public doesn't have all the answers. And the Ann Burke thing would be a violation of her judicial code of ethics. She's not allowed to hold. Well, I said this. I said this at a candidate forum. She threw Ann Burke under the bus, whether intentionally or not. Uh, of course, Ann Burke had nothing to do with that fundraising. She's a good and able lawyer, a good and able judge. She knows what the rules are. That had nothing to do with Ann Burke. It had everything to do with Tony Preckwinkle's relationship with Ed Burke. So you think he held the fundraiser and she asked him to, or what do you think happened I don't there? know. I don't know. But I, don't, I think she's got to explain that, and she hasn't yet. Do you think Ann Burke can become Chief Justice of the Illinois Supreme Court, as she is supposed to do in June? Or is, no. it, or is his imminent indictment, which is expected to come by May, mm -hmm. going to somehow taint her? Look, Ann Burke is a good person. I don't have an opinion on, and frankly don't know, the nuances of how one gets um, selected as the, the Chief Judge. I just know that this is a very sad story for Ann Burke. Um, and it's something that Tony Preckwinkle still has to explain to the voters. And do you think he ultimately pleads guilty and cuts a deal with the feds? Look, I don't know. And if he it, does, it, does he have to cough up <clears throat> information that he has? Look, the, the evidence against him is, it seems very compelling and powerful. And what I understand is the tip of the iceberg, what they revealed. So I think we just have to wait and see how that plays itself out over time. I don't want to play his lawyer. He's got very able counsel. Um, but he's in a very difficult situation, no question about it. And so it doesn't much matter if he wins or loses on Tuesday? Well, I, I think he's got bigger fish to fry and bigger issues to worry about um, that are way beyond um, his political future. Now, J.B. Pritzker did a budget address this week, mm -hmm. and there was no mention of a Chicago casino, mm -hmm. which has been the panacea for all the mayoral candidates to say that's how I'd partly pay for the pension spike. Mm -hmm. You've said... Chicago has a revenue problem, mm -hmm. and we have to have an on, honest conversation about mm -hmm. that. What do you mean? How will you deal yeah. with the spike in pension payments if you're elected? Well, listen, even if the casino were approved, that's years away from coming And it's online. not going to be because you're not even proposing right. it. <laughs> even if the um, legalization of marijuana comes online, that's not going to happen this year. Um, even if um, there's a progressive revenue um, income tax, which I favor to give relief to people. It's so many years <coughs> away. It's, so we do have a revenue issue. 
I mean, we're going to have to have an honest conversation about revenue, and anybody who says otherwise is either naive or not being honest about it. But I think we have to build the case for revenue. I've talked to people all over the city for months and months and months now, and they're worried about it. They're worried about the high taxes. They're worried about the regressive taxes that, frankly, feel unfair. Most people I know, and even people at the wealthier ends of the spectrum, say this to me. I'm willing to pay my fair share, but I, I have to know that the government is going to be responsible in utilizing our taxpayer dollars. It, we're not just going to be collecting money and lighting it on fire as we seem to be doing now, that we're not going to continue to treat taxpayers like they're an ATM machine without any limit. And so for me, I think we have to do a number of structural things first before we okay, have that conversation. Let's go. What? So for example, I, I've been talking about this for a number of years, police settlements, judgments, and attorney's fees, 50 to $60 million every single year. And we've already exceeded half a billion dollars in the amount of money that we have to go into the bond market and borrow. And if that debt is not restructured over time, it's going to be double or triple. People are appalled when they hear that. There's no sense of urgency. We don't have a risk well, manager. Well, how do you get a handle on that immediately? What I think you do immediately is this. We have about 400 of these cases that are pending at any given time. If I'm the mayor, I tell my corporation counsel, go through every single one of those cases, triage them, and let's figure out how we stop the bleed. I don't want more 5 and 10 and $20 million plus um, settlements and judgments. Let's figure out how we do justice to the people that have been truly victimized, but let's get these cases out of the court and resolved immediately. Are they the other too thing, quick to settle? Are they too no, I don't think they're, in, fr in fact, they're not too quick to settle. Another, another stream that's coming that, frankly, I think is going to be far worse than anything that we've seen related to, to um, Burge are the cases um, involving Detective Ray Guevara yeah. and Ronald Watts. Right. We've already had, I think, 50 cases where men have been exonerated or given a new trial on the basis of the, frankly, criminal conduct of these officers. That is going to add up. I said two years ago, two years ago, to Ed Siskel, the Corporation Counsel, you need to form a relationship with the Cook County State's Attorney's Office who's handling, and particularly the individual who's handling these post-conviction cases. We know who the frequent flyers are, the bad officers. What they should have done through a memorandum agreement or understanding, whatever it is, to be conscious and aware of those cases real time when they're filed. And if we know that there's another Ron Watts coming, or we know that there's another Ray, Ray Guevara, or anybody else that the court counsel should know is a problem officer, we need to intercede at the earliest possible stage, make sure we get justice for those defendants, and resolve those cases. When they linger for four or five years, and then they get a certificate of innocence, then they file the wave of federal suits against the city, they're not willing and interested in negotiating. They're just interested in knowing how big's my check, right? It's, it's foolish that the city has not interceded at the earliest possible stage when those cases get filed to try to resolve them and save taxpayers from footing these outrageous bills. There's no sense of urgency around that. I was like, I could have been talking to myself because the, the city and Ed Siskel did nothing, nothing. And we still don't have an early warning system for the, for we the bad officers. We still don't have an early warning system. That's something that we recommended as part of our task force report back in 16, almost three years ago. It's standard best practices and law de and, uh, um, um, 
police departments across the country. It's been piloted, it's in the pilot stage, I believe now, but, but, it, but the delay was because Rahm Emanuel wouldn't invest the $3 million that were necessary. 50 to $60 million a year versus $3 million, our return on investment for that meager investment could have been profound, but again, failed leadership. Okay, so how else do you build the case for new revenue? I think you build the, the case for uh, new revenue by, I've recommended <clears throat> closing um, the clerk's office. The clerk's office in particular performs ministerial functions that could easily be handled by somebody in the executive branch. They have their own administrative function. They have their own finance department. For example, city stickers. I think we should get rid of city stickers, frankly. Get rid I, of city stickers? Get rid of city stickers. And the reason for it is this. First of all, people hate the city stickers. Number one, we spend so much money trying to um, collect and, and, and police the city sticker program. We are losing money, not gaining money through the city sticker well, program. Well, it's about $100 million a year. But it's $100 million a year that most of which, if you actually look at the data, we're finding people and, we, and the debt has gone up exponentially, but we're not collecting the kind of resources that we need and to. And punishing people. Oh, and the fact that people are losing their jobs, being driven into bankruptcy, losing their driver's licenses over non-moving violations like city stickers and parking fines, that is absurd. We can't keep balancing the budget of the city on the backs of people who are least able, least able to shoulder that burden. You, so you would get <clears throat> rid of the city stickers and how would you pay for uh, repair of roads? Because that's what they, where that goes. Well, frankly- And I, some snow removal. Too. No, frankly, I think one of the things we have to do is push for a larger infrastructure um, bill coming out of Springfield. That would be part of my Springfield agenda. Um, the roads all over the city are a mess. Now look, I'm gonna say this. Part of the problem is we have tens of thousands of new cars that are on the roads. They're on the roads because of rideshare. They're on the road from rideshare cars from frankly people who don't even live in Chicago. And in, in many instances, people don't even live in Illinois. But they're coming here, they're riding on our roads, they're polluting our airs, and they're paying next to nothing. 20 cents a ride. M 20 yeah. cents a ride <clears throat> is what the mayor has levied on ride sharing. Do you think he has favored ride sharing because his brother is an Uber investor? What I know is he's been patently unfair to the taxi cab industry here, who has to, the medallion is basically worthless at this point. People are going out of business after they've invested hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, in a medallion that they can't even give away at this point. And the imbalance between the, the, what the taxis have to go through, the regulatory hoops that they have to jump through, just to be able to get behind the wheel of a taxi as compared to rideshare, it's not, even, it's not even in the same universe of fairness. It's patently unfair. Now, what his motives are for doing it, I don't know. But the result is, is that we have, a, we have created an unfair market advantage for the rideshare companies at the expense of the taxi cabs and, frankly, at the expense of taxpayers because we've got all these new cars that are clogging up our streets, adding to traffic congestion, using our roads, polluting our air, and they pay virtually nothing. So that you has get to rid change. of city stickers and you replace it with what, a higher ride-sharing tax? You have, to, you have to, I think, more closely regulate how many cars can be on the road and, frankly, for people that are from 
um, outside of Chicago, outside of Illinois, for goodness sake. I think we got to look at some of the things that, for example, New York is doing is require, um, think about requiring um, a license in Illinois at a minimum. And then I think we've got to levy much higher fees against the rideshare industry. How, how high? I, we haven't looked at the, what the a specific dollar, number is. I don't, I don't want to guess about what the number is. But, but it's I know not that 20 cents. It's not 20 cents. It's not is it even, five times as much as 20 cents? Well, it's got to be something that is actually fair and, under, and, and it brings balance between the rideshare industry and the taxi cab industry. I want to make sure, frankly, that those people have a requisite amount of insurance. I've been hearing stories from people that they're getting into car accidents with um, rideshare drivers who don't have the requisite uh, amount of insurance. And so then the person who's been victimized actually has to come out of their pocket to pay for either injuries or damage to their cars. So we have to look comprehensively at this whole program. But how do you how do you get fewer cars on the road? Mm. I'm, I'm not clear on what you well, are I think, proposing I think, here. I think, frankly, when you regulate it more aggressively, you're going to see um, fewer cars on the road. Um, we can't, the, the, if you know this, if you travel downtown or you travel on our expressways, we're becoming Los Angeles or Atlanta or Dallas, one of the high congestion um, localities all day. There's no rush hour anymore. It's perpetual. And getting around the city, particularly in the central business district, but also in the neighborhoods, is virtually impossible because of the huge amount of cars on our roads. Now, look, I understand that people, um, this is a source of income for folks. Right, that people have to that are forced to supplement their income, but we have to do it in a way that is properly regulated, so that we are not adding exponentially to, frankly, greenhouse gases and pollution, and we're not damaging our infrastructure, particularly our roads, uh, without having a source of income to offset that. And right now, it's a free for all. That's wrong. Before we go, you talk about criminal justice being a personal thing for you. Yes. How is that? Well, I have a brother, um, frankly, the one that I was, I'm close in, in age to and frankly was my hero growing up, who unfortunately spent most of his life um, in the street life. Um, he has robbed banks. He's been addicted to drugs. He's done other things. Um, he spent the last um, 17 years of uh, his incarceration life in a federal prison. Um, he's now uh, in his early 60s has a high school degree, really had no legitimate income, and he struggles every single day. Now, my brother made choices that I know he regrets, but I've seen up close and personal how the criminal justice system and people being in it can really devastate families. My father died while my brother was locked up, and I know that that eats at him every single day. He now comes out of prison, and my mother's 90 years old. And he's not seeing her for most of her, you know, later part of her life. So when I think about these issues and I think about the challenges of the returning citizens who are coming back into our city by the thousands every month, we have got to make a life and a place for them. If, you know, my faith tells me that we have to um, believe in the power of redemption. And if we do not as a city and as a state, frankly, um, allow people who have paid their debt to society to have an opportunity to participate meaningfully in the real economy, to be able to take care of themselves and their families and really address some of the issues that drove them into the criminal justice system. We are missing a real opportunity. I do believe that we have to be our brother's keeper, 
But I also frankly think there's a real financial and, and criminal justice imperative. Having people keeping recycling through the system without providing them with an off-ramp that we could easily do is a mistake. It's a moral mistake, but it's also a fiscal mistake. And we are not gonna get better as a community. And we think of particularly about those communities on the south and the west side that are um, not well situated to absorb these thousands of people that are coming back every month. We're never gonna be able to uplift the quality of life in those neighborhoods unless we also address the returning citizens issue. That's why I put out a policy um, to start the conversation around what we need to do um, but the city has to lead on this issue. We cannot leave it to somebody else or, or let it just be the, in, in the, there be a void there. We have to step up and lead on this issue. There are a number of great groups, um, not-for-profits like the Safer Foundation, like CARA, and some individual churches and neighborhood groups, but the city has to focus its attention on this population. It'll help us drive down violence and frankly, give people hope, which is desperately what is needed. Lori Lightfoot, thank you for joining us, and best of luck on oh, Tuesday. my pleasure. And this has been the Fran Spielman Show, brought to you by AARP, which invites you to attend two free community panel discussions about key issues facing our city, March 13th on the South Side, March 18th in Pilsen. To sign up, go to suntimes.com backslash AARP forum. See you next week.